Country Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, October 27th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool guru, Asit Sharma, as we discuss three of the hottest lifestyle stocks on the market today and think about what their businesses could be like in a post-COVID world. Asit, thank you for joining again. Thanks a lot for having me, Emily. Really excited and confused to be discussing lifestyle stocks. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) It's COVID-19. We should have been ready for this. I have to be honest, when you uh, sent me the pitch for this episode, I almost felt like you should have included a trigger warning with it because the first stock we're going to talk about as part of this lifestyle basket, it, it triggers me as a, as a millennial, you know, I can use that term. I am yeah. triggered by this company. I uh, Fair to say I have not maybe had the, the most wonderful past with my analysis of this company, but I'm interested to hear uh, your opinion and your take on it. Well, Emily, before we hop into your story, I should say industry focus is a safe space for you. So we can talk <laughs> about this with our friends. We'll get through this. I, I'm, I'm eager to hear this story. <laughs> I, I'm eager to tell it. It doesn't paint me in the best light, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, the company we're going to talk about first is Yeti. And our listeners may be familiar with this company just uh, from a consumer perspective, if not from a stock perspective, because they make really popular coolers and tumblers. They are a lifestyle brand associated uh, with the outdoorsiness, let's say. You know, so if you're you know, going for a fishing trip, you're going for a picnic, you may include some Yeti products in that experience. And you know, the first time I actually talked about this company was back in December, I believe it was December 6, 2018, about one month after its IPO. And we have an internal meeting here on the investing team. People bring companies and any other analyst who are interested in the company will join for that meeting. We'll discuss it. And at the end of the meeting, we'll give it a rank on a scale of one to five on a few different factors and then average out that ranking to kind of get a sense about how we feel about the company. And Yeti, granted, I was the one who talked about it, so I colored many of my other analysts' opinions with my own opinion, but Yeti is still the lowest-ranked stock we have ever brought to one of these meetings. I think it had just over a two out of five on that five-point scale, and it's actually up something like 200% or more since that meeting. So we, I really should say I, have been horribly wrong with my analysis of this company but as you know, Asit, when this company IPO'd, it was not the prettiest picture here. Yeah. Lots of things working against it. It looks different today, but but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So when I actually went back and I brought up my notes that I wrote down for the stock pitch, or I shouldn't call it a pitch, it was a stock discussion we had about Yeti. And it's funny, reading through a lot of what I thought included things like 
the fact that the entire executive team had turned over in the past two years, including its two co-founders. It was being controlled by a private equity firm called Cortec, which was really just milking the company for dividends. Uh, Their net sales from 2016 to 2017 heading into the IPO actually fell 22% due to overstocking of their products, which led me to have a lot of concerns about uh, not only just competition as competition came in, but also management and how they were managing their own inventories. Their gross margins were decreasing, and they were planning on using all of the IPO proceeds to pay their own debt. Um, Over half of all their operating income was going to to paying interest on their debt. There was really nothing here that was redeemable for me about the company. And I really missed, I missed the point. I focused on all these little details, and I think I missed the bigger picture that was being painted behind the scenes, which was everybody and their dog loved the Yeti brand. And I immediately realized my mistake because as I said, and I've talked for a while now, I apologize. But as I said, we did this analysis or I did this analysis at the very beginning of December, 2018. When I traveled back to Texas for the holidays, I had realized I made a horrible mistake because all of my friends for Christmas that year had gotten Yeti products. I mean, if I had a dollar for every Yeti mug I saw, I would be a rich woman right now. I was thinking to myself, man, I really missed the mark on this. And yeah, it's up. I just looked at the numbers and here, 240% since that meeting. Wow. Crazy. Well, Emily, I should say you should have known better. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. You know why? I have a similar story to tell. I have a confession to make. I did something very similar. So this was, I'm looking at the dates, but about a week before your meeting, um, I did a deep dive on Yeti with Vince Shen, uh, who uh, regular IF listeners will remember, was once a host on the consumer goods section. We tore the S1 apart and we came to a lot of the same conclusions. The bad pun I made at the end of that show was, um, don't buy this stock, just Yeti. You know, that's great. Wait a few quarters and watch it because we, we looked at the debt load and we said, yeah, that's, you know, that's onerous. And it's basically being managed by this company, Cortec, like a private equity company. Um, I did give Cortex, I gave Cortex some points because they had hired away Dunkin' Donuts CFO, um, really smart gentleman named Paul Corbon. He's still there today. Um, I had admired his work at Dunkin' and I thought, you know, he probably can help them scale their, their sales. And they have this thing where they want to go more direct to consumer. They started out as mostly, they call it wholesale, but that just means that their stuff is ending up in retail locations. For me, the first time I saw Yeti product, it was in my local Ace Hardware. They had this big display and everything was expensive <laughs> from the coolers to like the 20 and $30 mugs. Um, so we we gave it uh, some points for the brand, but but we missed the brand. Um, before the taping that day, we had a 15-minute conversation with Austin Morgan, a frequent producer of Industry Focus, a man behind the glass. And Austin was going on and on about the brand. He told us, you guys have to look at its Instagram following. This is the going to be the lifestyle brand for coolers. For my generation, we should have listened to Austin. I should have listened to Austin. I don't know if, if Vince ever bought shares, but I didn't. 
And you know, the second mistake I made, Emily, was not really paying attention to it because it's been sort of a sleeper stock. You don't hear a lot about it in the market, but it's gone up. And like you said, a lot of that has come this year in COVID, but since it's IPO, it's been a multi-backer. So I'm in the same boat with you there. Yeah, it's funny you say that, that it's a sleeper brand, because I'm not sure if we've even covered it on Industry Focus since that uh, coverage of its S1 that you did with Vince. It really has been a monster. And and when I said that 240% since that meeting I had, it's worth noting 65% of that is just this year alone as more people spend time outside. But really, that doesn't paint the full picture. It was doing well even before the pandemic. I think one of the things that I, I just had as a footnote in this report, which I should have focused more on, one of the things that you noted was their focus, renewed focus, both since the IPO to today on direct-to-consumer. When they IPO'd in their S1, they had noted that direct sale revenue had grown from 8% in 2015 to 30% of revenue when they were IPOing, and that's up to about 42% of sales today. So this is a number that just continues to expand. But in addition to just being really successful in wholesale and direct-to-consumer, what else has made this company such a beast since the IPO? Yeah, you know, one of the things is it's really chosen the, the, the right channels to be in. So, for example, one of the ones that um, you mentioned when we were prepping the show is uh, Dick's Sporting Goods. We're going to talk, incidentally, about Dick's later in the show. But in 2019, uh, Dick's was repre- represented, sorry, uh, some 15% of sales. So, to be in Dick's is a really great place to be because for people who are shopping lifestyle products. Remember, Dick's isn't just sporting goods, although that's the name. It's got a lot of camping gear. It's got a lot of the outdoor lifestyle type of gear that you want to buy. And so being front and center in that there really helped it extend the brand. Um, and that has something to do with the overall strategy. Uh, this company is trying to move outside of basically the, the South and Southeast where it originated. There's a lot of white space in the rest of the country. And so being in a major uh, retailer, big box retailer like Dick's has really helped it. Um, Also, they've been successful online in in the Amazon marketplace. Um, That was 13% of sales in 2019. One of the um, advantages of being this sort of social brand, and I'm sure that there are tons of, of listeners out there who probably first encountered Yeti through social media, is that it's pretty easy to extend that brand if you're using so-called influencers. I have to put that little dig in, (laughs) so-called influencers. If you're using that to um, extend your product recognition, which Yeti does an extremely good job of, then it's quite easy to expand your geographical footprint. So they're they're not just uh, in the US, but they've sort of leveraged this social imprint. Um, They're in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Europe. So I think that's, you know, these are some of the things that the company's been successful in. Maybe I discounted that as well, just reading through that S1, that they'd be able to capitalize on these strengths, get that big retail footprint out. I should mention um, just one more thing. They've got a partnership with Lowe's. So they're going to have more of a presence in Lowe's, the big do-it-yourself retailer. That just got stymied a bit by COVID. It was supposed to gear up this year. So I, I personally haven't seen a lot of Yeti presence in low stores when, when I'm in them, but I think after 
they manage some supply chain issues after we get a little further from the worst part of the pandemic, you're going to see more of that um, in a really great place, I think, to, to feature the brand. So they're, they're still focusing on that wholesale slash retail presence as much as they want to increase the direct-to-consumer sales. It's funny that you talk about uh, you using the company using influencers to kind of expand its presence. I think that's actually where emotion has gotten in the way of my investing in the past was I remember doing the initial research on Yeti and being very turned off with the company because I would find impartial reviews on places like YouTube or people were showing how long they could leave ice in coolers and how long the drinks would stay cold and to what temperatures. And for the large part, people doing it impartially were finding that Yeti was uh, you know, just as good, maybe a little bit better, but not $600 better, just as good as coolers from their competitors. But then you'd have these influencers who are wearing Yeti hats and Yeti t-shirts talking about how amazing the Yeti cooler is, how all their stuff is cold constantly or warm if you want to keep it warm. And I really discounted that. And it was simply because I, as a, as a consumer, was turned off of it not giving enough credence to the fact that so many loyal followers of Yeti really enjoyed the product. Uh, But without me droning on anymore, I have one last question for you about Yeti before we can move on to the next lifestyle company we'll discuss. Um, And I want to talk about Cortec today. I was convinced when it IPO'd that Cortec was using it as an exit strategy that they would sell out the moment the lockup period was up. That really wasn't the case. They held on to their position uh, of around 34% up until earlier this year. They now own less than 1% of Yeti stock. They sold out throughout the entirety of this year. They held on for, for five plus years here. Do you think this was part of their exit, uh, their just exit strategy? This was planned from the beginning? Or do you think they see the writing on the wall in some sense? Man, it's a great question, Emily. I, you know, I would say that they're, they're probably caught, and I would be too if I was in the situation. So this is, remember, this is not a company that just sort of was a funder. This was the primary funder of the company, and they have all, you know, all the risk in it uh, with, a, with a great stake. And they've got the opportunity to realize uh, their investment here, the stock doing so well. And especially with this unforeseen COVID boost, which has only jacked the stock price up more, it's a tough decision. You know, I looked at the recent proxy statement, I think that was in March, and they still held their share. And then you pointed out that since, so it must have been since March (laughs) during COVID, (laughs) they've sold out. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's, look, we've really shepherded this company along. They still have a member of Cortec that sits on the board of directors. They're very friendly with the, the co-founders who um, one of the, the co-founders has some shares, I think three, four percent, but isn't actively involved. The other shareholders, so these are two brothers, the Cedar brothers. Ryan still owns four percent of the shares and he's not involved. And Roy Cedars owns about six percent and he sits on the board of directors. Cortec is still friendly with, with all of this group, but I think they decided, look, this is probably the opportune time to reap the fruit of a lot of work because they also, you know, as I mentioned, they help the company make a lot of great decisions and they help the company decide that direct to consumer was going to be a focus. So they probably want to, to realize not just their, their investment, the equity on their investment, but the fruit of their hard work. And, and I think there is a little bit of what's going to happen after COVID and things are going to get tougher. So maybe this isn't a bad time to, to walk away. It, it, I think it's a little bit of both. Before we move on, what do you think? Just curious, 
What's your thought? Yeah, this is hard for me as well. Yeti has had a monster year. I think Cortec has been wanting, I mean, you don't IPO a company unless you're at some point planning on getting the liquidity that comes with it. Otherwise you just continue to milk the dividends. I do think the run-up we've seen this year has probably catalyzed their decision to sell. I'm surprised they sold out of everything so quickly though. I Maybe they have some negative thoughts about what the holiday season could look like, but typically this is a seasonal business that benefits a lot, not just from the summer months, but a lot of people give Yetis as gifts. It's a very giftable brand. I'm a little surprised they sold out before the holiday season. I maybe would have waited to see if there is a post-holiday bump there. But again, maybe this is them saying, well, we've held on for five plus years. We're not probably not going to reap that much value by holding on more. Plus, we have the uncertainty of what this you know, COVID-impacted holiday season will look like. So I find some I find myself lying somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Yeah, and, and time will tell what that decision looks like, if they should have maybe just sold out half um, or if it was a good time. They, last, last thought is that it's probably too like, it's time for the Robins to leave the nest. We helped this company along. They're doing well. Um, let's pull our you know, money out and put it somewhere else in another new opportunity. But we'll see. We'll, we'll see how this company does. It's certainly got opportunity to have it if you're a long-term shareholder. And you mentioned as we were discussing uh, Yeti that one of their biggest uh, partners was Dix, which is another lifestyle company that we're, we're going to discuss. And I have to be honest, I, I'm, I wasn't before taking over the consumer goods uh, host chair here. Dix was a company I never thought about. But as I'm learning more and more about it, as I'm discussing it with you, as I've discussed it with Dan Klein in the past, this is a company that I've realized has really become what I'm going to call the best buy of outdoor uh, sporting, outdoor entertainment. The same reason that people thought Best Buy was doomed because it was going to be destroyed by Amazon. I think it was easy to say that all the stuff you could get at a Dick's, you could order online. But man, do people just love the Dick's experience. They do. And, And I will say that personally, whenever I've walked into a a big uh, sporting goods outlet, I wonder like, is this going to stick around, especially with Dick's Sporting Goods, because they're the biggest and and baddest around, at least in my area. And I've been in and out of these stores throughout the years because I have three teenage sons. Actually, to be honest, one is now in his 20s, but had three three, uh, younger guys. And I was constantly buying sports equipment for them. They're all three very active and often in Dixon. I I just wonder like, how are these guys going to stay in business? Now, conversely, I never had any um, I, or problem understanding why an REI, which is actually a cooperative, it's not a publicly traded company, why they would stay in business. Because I, I love REI. I love walking those stores. Their stuff is a little expensive, but I totally get it. I mean, they, they are geared towards people who love quality stuff of, you know, for hiking, for trekking, for camping, just outdoor stuff in general. And for the Dix customer, um, I think that's part of the reason, but you're right. They are another sort of sleeper stock that is growing on investors because they've proven to be resilient. Amazon didn't take their business away and their customers just love to go there. So they're they're a stock we should pay attention to. Now, before we talk about how great their business has been, uh, even this year alone, but also pre-pandemic, I, I want to add another level of negativity before we bring it yeah. somewhere positive. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> part, of, 
the reason why I was so not interested in dicks was because in my mind, it, there was nothing different about dicks. First of all, they're in malls and malls have been struggling, but there was nothing different about the dicks experience than the experience that I would get if I went to a place like Academy Sports and Outdoors. Do you remember Academy? Yeah, vaguely. We don't have them as much in my area, but I've been in them before. So it's very similar. It, it's it's similar. The dicks are, are are nicer. I grew up near an academy that then went out of business when the company declared bankruptcy. But we found out earlier this year, if my memory serves me right, that Academy Sports and Outdoors is in fact planning on going public, uh, which blew my mind, not just because they had a business that they thought could uh, be warranting of, of public equity, but more that the business was even in existence in the first place. At some point, maybe we'll need to do a deep dive into that company's S1. I'm pretty sure it's it's just as disastrous as you would imagine it would be. But in my mind, Academy and Dix were maybe on the same level. I, I realize how wrong that statement is now, especially with their most recent earnings report. But I think a lot of consumers and, and maybe some investors have even written off the company, given it that mindset of, of a legacy retailer. But with that level of negativity added. Now let's talk about the positive because everything I just said has not by any means been backed up by the numbers that Dix has been putting out. Yeah, so um, I'm going to read again some of from your great notes uh, so listeners can get a feel for how successful they've been recently. So they had their highest quarterly sales and earnings um, in this past uh, quarter, $2.7 billion in sales. And that converted to about $3.21 of earnings per share. Same store sales, comps increased to 20.7%. And this is even with about 15% of stores being closed during the quarter. Now, I think I read on the, the call transcript that all stores are, are now open. So this next reporting period, we'll see what that looks like. But that is pretty amazing performance, Emily. And they did that by bumping their online sales up almost 200%. Online sales increased 194% year over year. About half of that was through mobile. And I will say, now, Emily, we've both followed a lot of consumer goods companies this whole pandemic. And I will say that's sort of near the top of the range. Everyone who's still out there and alive as a retailer is reporting some kind of great e-commerce growth. But this is pretty impressive. This is like target level. Target had about the same type of increase um, and doing the same things, just being ready to service curbside pickup. So to me, that was really, really impressive. I just love the fact that the pandemic has catalyzed technological change for companies that maybe would be worse off without it. I think the move for consumers to be aware of mobile and curbside pickup, these these sorts of advances is great. Plus the investment that we've seen from companies like Dix into expanding their relationship with customers, meeting them where they want to be met, whether it's on mobile, whether it's getting picked up, whether it's ordering online or even still coming into stores. Dix has really hit the customers on all fronts. And I love that. I, I think where I find myself scratching my head is about how they keep it up, not just thinking about you know, the trend that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the really impressive comps. Next year, it's never going to be this impressive, even if Dix is doing a great job. Uh, so it's important to be cognizant of that. But I do wonder just how many people they retain. 
so many of what I would imagine to be purchases that people are making are one-time purchases because they spent more time outdoors over the past few months than they have in any year prior. I don't think these are permanent lifestyle changes that suddenly people are going to be making repeat purchases from Dick's. That makes me a little bit nervous about how many customers they actually retain, but their brand has certainly improved. Yeah. And, and I think this is one of the things that as an investor, you have to pay attention to that sometimes a brand will sort of prove you wrong in, in your thesis. We just talked about the strength of Yeti's brand. And, and I'm guessing that some of the customers that Yeti is picking up are going to be sticky just because their pull is so strong. I'm, I'm sort of agreeing with you, not so much so as Dick's. Um, so they have like, what, more than 70% of sales uh, came through members who are enrolled in their loyalty program, the store card. I just want to say in a personal note, that's a very clunky program if anyone's ever used it. Sometimes it can be hard to just figure out how many points you have. And then you'll take the little fob on your keychain that you thought worked and you'll have to sit there for five minutes while they go through four or five different screens and, and figure out, oh, no, that's with, with a prior registration. I know this just can't be me because I've talked to a few friends who've experienced this similar. When I used to coach soccer, we had the same experience. Now, having just dissed their loyalty program, we should say that um, their aim is to get more people enrolled in that and to keep those numbers up. Hopefully they'll stick around. But I, I too want to say, this is maybe one to be more careful of. They may not be capturing as much permanent market share for the reasons that you listed, Emily. And I also want to say that, look, last year, their stock was up almost 60% um, in 2019. So the stock has already had a good run. And that was mostly because if you uh, all remember this, there was a big controversy about removing firearms from various retail chains. Oh, there was, wasn't there? Yeah, Walmart went through this and Dick's, they took a stand. They said, look, we're just going to cut down um, our hunting stores within our stores. We're going to remove firearms from our stores. It was controversial. Um, a lot of their fan base in the South where I live, which is hunting culture, the, the further South you go and to the, the Southwest, they didn't like that. But you know what it allowed them to do was use floor space for items that were selling better and had higher margins. And they got a boost out of that. Uh, I don't know how it all fell out with their customer base, but I do know that Wall Street got excited. Investors got excited about the potential for them to, for example, move their private brands, which they, they have a few private brands, into the spaces where the, the hunting goods were. They realized so much last year, and, and now they have this COVID boost. So I'm wondering too, Emily, did, does the stock just return to earth a little bit last year, None uh, next year? Nonetheless, it's been interesting to watch. Yeah, definitely one we'll have to keep our eye on. And the last company you had on this list is a company that whose name would imply that they're doing something just amazing. It has to be the <laughs> coolest company to ever exist. I had never heard of it before you put it on this list, Austin. Uh, needless to say, they're maybe not doing a business that is as cool as their name. The company is Thor Industries, spelled T-H-O-R. Thor Industries. And uh, tell us what this business is, because I'll tell you one thing. I, I spent way too long just trying to get an understanding of what Thor Industries does. Sure. Well, you know, Thor Industries supplies a lot of the CGI for um, different blockbuster films. You guys may have known, might have seen the character Thor at the movie theaters. 
No, I'm joking. I was just checking my notes. I was like, oh my gosh, I researched the wrong company. I, I was sitting here thinking right? like, oh. <laughs> that is such a great name. That's what that's what it sounds like it must do. You know, like um, uh, I want to say it was, let's see. I'm trying to remember the name of uh, the, the production company that was evolved out of, spun out of Star Wars. Industrial Light and Magic. That's what it is. Sort of like that, Thor Industries. No, Thor Industries is actually an RV manufacturer, a recreational vehicle manufacturer. And they basically have uh, two components. One are towable RVs. So those are uh, RVs that you can hitch to your car and take to a campsite. And they also have the big uh, RVs, which are self-driven known as motorized RVs. And um, as you point out, Emily, in, in our prep for this show, they are the brain behind a really, really cool, iconic brand, which is the Airstream brand, um, which has been around for a long time. And that's sort of, if you had like one, to name one RV brand that most people would have heard of besides Winnebago, it would be Airstream. So that's sort of what they do. They are um, also expanding into Europe. I should say before um, I flip this back to you, they purchased um, a European manufacturer based in Germany called Erwin Heimer Group uh, last year, I believe it was last year for about $1.8 billion. Um, that was a stock transaction. And that company has provided them with a footprint into Western Europe, which is really uh, heavily into RVs as a recreation uh, for the summer. So that's sort of an overview of what Thor Industries does. And yeah, unfortunately they are not some cool CGI company. <laughs> Well, for what it's worth, I, I think the Airstream is pretty cool. Not because I know a lot about legacy RV brands, but because recently, especially during the pandemic, as people have attempted to you know, change their living situation to be uh, more adaptable to whatever their current life looks like, Airstreams have become a really popular flipper RV. People emptying out the insides of the Airstreams to make a towable that they can live in, turning them into tiny houses. So I'm aware of Airstream simply because of that, not from the RV angle, not that I'm planning on living in an Airstream anytime soon, but people do do that. I, I'm just, I'm going to need you to, to paint me a compelling picture here because when I looked through their most recent 10K, their most recent annual report that was released last month, man, did things look gloom. Uh, looking at their towable segment, it fell 10% year over year, 31% fall since 2018 in terms of revenue. Uh, the same is true for motorized vehicles. Th those fell 16% year over year, 35% since 2018. The only segment that was growing is the European segment because of that acquisition you just mentioned. When I look at, at their revenue falling like that, this doesn't really make me excited as an investor. Right. And yet the stock is up this year um, and has was up last year. So what's, what's going on here? The story is that the RV industry was enjoying a boom time uh, really that culminated in about the 2017 to early to mid 2018 period. And this company, other RV stocks like Winnebago were soaring. They reached their peak backlog in the middle of 2018. Thor reached its, its peak backlog at the very same time. Dealers. So when you drive by on the interstate and you see like gosh, a couple hundred RVs lined up on the side of the road, <laughs> RV dealers, their lots were they were bursting at the seams. And then what happened was something very curious. The economy at large was still doing okay, but consumers, which had been fueling 
uh, all this production, they just suddenly started pulling back in 2018. And by the middle of the year, it was apparent that sales were going to decrease. And what happened was dealers told the big RV manufacturers, look, we've got to rationalize our own inventory. We've got to work the inventory on our lots down, which caused just this whole chain reaction. Uh, sales declined for Thor, and they've really been declining since. And only in the last quarter, just before COVID, so this is two quarters ago, Thor and Winnebago and other smaller manufacturers finally said, hey, we think the dealer inventory rationalization is over. Our backlogs have been worked down. We're ready for the, the consumer to come back. And so while we're still seeing some effects from that peak in 2018, suddenly consumers are hitting the road. They want to buy RVs. They want to um, be out. And speaking of Instagram with Yeti, they, they want to have hashtags like fan life and show what they're <laughs> up to. So it looks like a really good picture again. Now, here's the caveat. I had written about Thor at the beginning of 2019 because I thought it looked like a good buy. Investors were really down on the stock and it was selling at a very cheap Ford priced earnings multiple. Um, it was after that really big glut of inventory and backlog in 2018. Stock has done pretty well. Since then, it's up about 77%, not because I'm any genius, but it also got a boost from COVID. But the question is this, Emily, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. The question is, are we just headed towards another peak all over again? Their sales could increase over the next couple of quarters because now the consumer is back. So these declines that we're seeing, they're probably going to level out. And management is talking about their working supply chain issues, um, that those are going to be smoother. They'll produce more. Sales are going to grow. Backlog has hit a record all over again because of people who want RVs due to COVID-19. Are we just looking at another peak? What if consumers suddenly disappear again? I think it's a little more shaky proposition than it looks. You know, the stock is doing well. You look at what management's saying. Um, it looks like a company you could still buy today. The multiple isn't that high, but there could be some hidden danger here all over again. What are your thoughts on that? I tend to to think that we are headed towards another peak. And maybe this is me throwing back again, like you said, to Yeti, where I, I discount things based off my own personal biases too much. I, I am afraid that I could be doing the same thing in this scenario, but it's really hard for me to imagine um, RV life, van life, airstream life, whatever it may be, becomes a permanent shift in our in our economy and the way that we like to live our lives. Uh, I just happen to wonder if it's simply because of the pandemic and that that demand doesn't somewhat normalize when, when you know, the situation of the world has normalized as well. But the reason why I think that that is where I tend to go. I think the good counter argument to, to my statement there is that housing has gotten so horribly expensive. Uh, the demand for housing is at an all-time high, while the inventory of houses are at an all-time low. Uh, I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, but it gets the yeah, gist, which is to sure. say the demand certainly outstrips the supply of houses right now. And I don't see that changing over the, the short to medium term, which means that people who don't want to rent or are in a position where they can't rent, they want to have some ownership over where they're living. 
the people who I, I jokingly said it at the offset, but the people who are converting airstreams into tiny houses that are buying RVs to travel and, and potentially live in full time, these are people that, hey, maybe they're just ahead of the curve. And maybe people who can't afford housing have been priced out of the market or simply can't find housing that fits their lifestyle. Maybe they move towards RVs. And if that is the case, I can see a sustainable shift in demand for things like RVs that could permanently impact Thor. I'm not sure I'm ready to make that bold statement. So that's why I tend to fall on the former point I made that I think demand or normalize, but I don't want to discount the possibility of something like that happening. Yeah, sure. And to uh, the credit of the industry, we should also say that long-term, there are some tailwinds that, that the industry likes to point to, which I think are valid. Uh, the first being that surprisingly, the demographic of people who buy RVs is actually becoming more diverse and younger. You might think it's uh, just something that old people do, but younger people, millennials uh, especially, they are very much into spending money on experiences rather than things. And an RV is a great gateway to experiences. So that's a thing you might buy if you favor experiences. And we've talked about this um, on Industry Focus over the years. So that is a long-term uh, tailwind for the industry. And also the purchaser is becoming diverse. So Thor, Winnebago, these other companies I've mentioned, they all are tracking uh, diversity uh, of First time entrance into the RV industry. So African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, again, the, the younger age group, there's a more diverse set of people that are buying RVs. And so the industry sees that there's a lot of expansion in the total addressable market when you look at it as a group of people who are buying, buying the vehicles. So, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. It's just hard at this point. I'm looking at Thor's price to earnings ratio on a forward basis as we speak. And my chart says that it's about 13 times forward earnings, but we have to take that with a huge grain of salt because number one, earnings have been really volatile with both the production changes because of that inventory peak and also supply chain issues with COVID-19. So first of all, that might not be as cheap as it looks. But second of all, uh, you know, this company is in a competitive space. There are any number of other uh, competitors always at the, the, the ready, the way that it's expanded Thor has been through acquisition. So um, it's bought not just uh, each EHG in Europe, but other smaller uh, producers along the way. Does the industry just consolidate you know, to the point where how much will this one company, which is already the world's largest now that's acquired EHG, how much more can it grow? So there, there's some reasons to be a little skeptical, even though it's been a popular stock this year with investors because of this whole lifestyle shift. I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna probably pass on this one as an investment. I will continue to follow it and write about it. But I don't know, what about you? Would you buy it uh, today, Emily? Oh, at the risk of making another Yeti-sized mistake, I also feel like I'd have to pass on this opportunity. But I will not be passing on continuing to watch those many documentaries people are posting on sites like YouTube, converting Airstream into houses. That's very cathartic if you're like me and in a one-bedroom apartment for the past nine months. <laughs> I'm going to continue to dream about buying one of these vehicles. I think that'll be my investment. <laughs> there you go. Well, Asit, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your insights as always. I know I appreciate it and I know our listeners do as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Emily. It's all, always fun to, to hop on and, and listen to your 
insights and gather wisdom from you as well. So thanks again. And listen to me complain about Yeti for half the show. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was fun hearing you gripe. I have the same gripe. So I wish I'd bought shares in 2018, but there's, there's always opportunities in the market. Industry focus where investors come to gripe uh, should be our new motto. <laughs> Love it. And listeners, that does it for this episode of uh, Gripe Focus. I mean, Industry Focus. Uh, if you have any questions or you just want to reach out, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks, Tim Sparks, for mixing today's episode. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thank you for listening and fool on. Mm-hmm.